Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and I'm very happy to say that my guest today is Dr. Deepak Chopra. Last time I saw Oprah interview, she said, man, it's really hard to get you in this chair. So I consider this something of a miracle that I've gotten you in my chair. Deepak and I met over 30 years ago in the Cambridge TM Center, where I was teaching Transcendental Meditation. He came in and learned, and we became friends. I ended up uh, living with his parents in India for a couple of months. But I haven't really seen him since that time, so it really warms my heart to be able to see, to see you again. 1980, so it's... Uh, so 33 years or yeah, so. 33 years. Yeah, which is a lifetime in Jesus' years. Hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, you and I were both students of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and I thought I might start by bringing up a, a principle that Maharishi often stated, which is the principle of the highest first. And as I understood that principle, if you have a lot of things to do and not enough time to do them all, start with the most important thing. So I thought I'd start by asking you what you consider to be the highest, most profound, most influential uh, thing that you would like to discuss in an interview. And we'll take it from there. Self-awareness. Why is that the highest? Because that's who you are before you're a mind, a body, and a universe. And how much can one actually say about self-awareness before needing to really get down and experience it? Well, you bring yourself to every situation, every circumstance, every event, every relationship, every environment. As the phrase is, wherever you go, there you are. So, if you don't know what the self is, how do you know anything else? In order to know the universe, in order to know relationship, in order to know the environment, you have to start with who wants to know. So the implication is that physicists who are trying to understand the universe, or married couples who are trying to get along, or you know, would do well to know the self, because that would be the foundation for really understanding the universe, or being in a harmonious relationship, or anything else, right? Yeah, in every observation, there's an observing self. In every experiment, there's an observing experiment. In every relationship, there's somebody who's engaging in the relationship. If you don't know yourself, how can you know anything else? And in your opinion, rough guess, what percentage of people in the world know themselves? I think less than 0.01% of people even have thought about it. Why is it so rare? Because uh, our education and our upbringing is not about who we are, but about what we want. Now, of course, some spiritual traditions and teachers would hold that it's rare because it's so hard to access or realize, and that you know, even the Gita says, out of you know, hardly anybody knows about it. Even those who hear about it don't understand it, and those who really go for it, only a small percentage boils down who actually ever even realize it. So, uh, you know, why is it so exclusive? I think it's a recycling of the hypnosis of collective conditioning more than anything else. We're in a certain stage of our development as a human species. And there are, as they use these words these days, there are early adopters and outliers. Mm -hmm. And for most of uh, history, uh, we've been like that because history is recent. Human beings have only learned to speak 
15,000 years ago, right only 5,000 years ago, there was the so-called axial age around the time of Jesus and other people where you had within a few hundred years Buddha, Jesus, the Greek philosophers, the sages of the Upanishads a little later actually and uh, the prophets of the Old Testament. That's when apparently, according to many, self-awareness got to be recognized in the human species. Before that, you know, in the jungles, as, as hunter-gatherers, there was none of that. Uh, we've been through, then, we've been through many stages. You had the hunter-gatherers, you had the agricultural, horticultural state, you had the industrial age, then you had the information age. Uh, now we are living in, I think, the cusp of the information age and the age of knowledge. But the next jump, I hope, will be the age of self-awareness or wisdom as the goal of all the previous goals. It's very interesting, you know, hunter-gatherers just killed, that's all they did. Uh, the, age of uh, the age of agriculture, the whole world started to recognize that you could feed yourself by ad adapting, you know, agricultural methodologies. Industry, suddenly it was all about minerals and machines. Right now, the sources of wealth in the world are um, silicon chips, which is information on a piece of dust. But what are we going to do with this information and data? By itself, it's meaningless. So I, we see all across the world that knowledge is coming through information technologies. You can be in China and get Harvard to educate you. Mm -hmm. I think it's only natural that we sh as we progress in our own expansion of what is, that uh, wisdom, which is the nurturing of life in the whole ecosystem, will become the next phase of our evolution. And that's when self-awareness will blossom. You know, I think uh, as a worldwide phenomenon, my hope is, at least my thought is, if we survive, then that should happen. Uh, in Jesus' time, you know, he didn't have the internet or Oprah for that matter. <laughs> Now, as an Indian, of course, you're familiar with the concept of the cycle of yugas, and mm -hmm. you know, and if we buy into that uh, theory, then there were actually enlightened ages a long time ago where perhaps self-realization was the norm, and we've sort of descended from there. Um, yeah, but I have no way to document that. Right. I know that right now. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. So whether or not that happened, we we seem to be on an uptick. Uh, if, if as, as you say, we survive, but um, there seems to be some sort of epidemic of awakening taking place. There seems to be. At the same time, there seems to be a lot of destruction taking place, you know, especially ecological destruction. Mm -hmm. There seems to be a lot of uh, mechanized death, which we take for granted, actually. Every day, people are killed with drones, and, you know, every other year you hear about chemical weapons being used. There's war, always. It's a permanent condition, mm. war. So I don't know if we're on the up. I think we're at a crossroads. Yeah. 
I can two things that Marshi said come to mind. There's one in early part of the Gita where he talks about you know when negativity reaches a, a, an apex and it really can't be tolerated anymore. Then the Lord comes and reverses the, the situation. But I've also heard him say. Not that, uh, and the Lord might come in the form of many people getting awakened. I'm not talking about an avatar walking among us. But then another thing I remember hearing him say is that, you know, the the polarities will actually increase. That there could be a simultaneous increase of both negative and positive forces, mm -hmm. kind of uh, duking it out with each other. <laughs> it looks like that. It yeah. looks like that. Yeah. Um, oh, go ahead. No, I just had the idea we should let them duke it out and just watch. Well, aren't we on the on the on the good team? <laughs> <laughs> Why be on any team? Because you know, then you engage in the drama, and you engage in the madness. You know, as I was saying a while ago, I had this moment in meditation when I realized that we're living in a lunatic asylum. Mm -hmm. There's no other way to describe it. Everything that we see is madness, but it's normal. So. We're in it. There's no escaping the lunatic asylum. You can choose to be an inmate or you can pick up your visitor's badge. So I chose that day to pick up my visitor's badge and I realized that, yeah, the, the good guys, the bad guys, that's eternally going on. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really solve the problem and good guys win. And sooner or later the cycle reverses, as you said, right? Mm -hmm. So you must transcend the duality, and, and uh, yeah, it's in a way you help the evolution if you transcend the duality. Yeah, that's kind of what I was implying that there's this uh, beneficial influence to this spiritual stuff. It's yeah. not just a self-serving kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, no, for there's your own a beneficial influence yeah. in that the spiritual being is not a person. It's it's it's. Uh, unified consciousness that transcends space-time and just by improving the quality of collective being then the evolutionary impulse takes over or speeds up and gains advantage over the inertial impulses and that probably is what the Bhagavad Gita is about it's you know if you feel really read through it, the battle is in consciousness and the, both the divine and diabolical forces are in consciousness and the vanquishing of evil is really not a bow and arrow even though it's part of the story it's the four yogas as taught by Lord Krishna in 18 chapters you know, Raj Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, Gyan Yoga and Karma Yoga that's what is taught so Arjuna, the great warrior, is vanquishing the demons in consciousness through the practice of yoga. That's a totally different way of looking at the good guys and the bad guys. Yeah. Um, and w with regard to your, your insane asylum metaphor, um, two people can be walking down the same street. One of them's in hell and one of them's in heaven. It's the same yeah. street. Yeah. You know? So that's your visitor pass if you're if, hmm. you know if you're living in heaven mm -hmm. in what others may be perceived to be a hellish world that's right <laughs> so over the you know course of since I first met you and you learned to meditate um, I'm sure that you know when you first learned in fact you, you used to talk about this with me you, you know you kind of were kind of an ordinary stressed out guy and an endocrinologist in Boston and you know uh, 
little skeptical about even a little skeptical about some of this spiritual stuff. And you've obviously undergone a dramatic, profound transition over the years. Um, I'm a little bit uh, curious about what it's like to be Deepak. Um, from your perspective, do you feel like you're not doing anything and, and there's this sort of instrument that you're somehow associated with that's carrying out some kind of cosmic purpose or something, if we want to call it that? It sound too grand. I mean, uh, that I'm carrying out a cosmic purpose. I'm also, on the other hand, not doing anything. Um, my life with my family and my children is the same as it always was before. I am a bit surprised as the the public image that I seem to have. Mm -hmm. I don't take it seriously. Uh, myself, but uh, people ask me, oh, do you feel a sense of responsibility? And I actually don't. I mean, and like singing in the bathroom, and people, some people like to hear the tune. <laughs> so I'm just doing what comes naturally to me. And you know, I'm still a doctor, I'm still a physician. I keep a license in California and in Massachusetts. Uh, we have a group practice at the Chopra Center with other physicians. We've really actually focused only on that thing as as a group, you know, me and my cohort of MDs. And over the years, we've created a course called Journey into Healing, which incorporates a lot of the Ayurvedic principles, uh, principles as qualia medicine, that we call it, and integrative medicine. And we've successfully taught thousands of doctors now. Mm. And uh, our courses are recognized for CME credit by um, the American Medical Association. We do collaborative research with universities in California, with Harvard. Uh, we have medical students going through our institution. And uh, we are a university. Chopra University. It's a recognized Credited. university in mm. the state mm. of California. Mm. So that's been our focus. Now because mm. what happened is that the people who are, whom I'm associated with are so good at what they do that I only spend maybe 25-30% of my time when we are teaching a course and I'm required. Mm -hmm. We're right here right now. The center is going on mm -hmm. because of the people that we have there. And so I spend my time in public speaking and writing and it seems like the people respond to it. So, you know, when people respond to it, I do more of it. Yeah. And so it's nothing I planned, really. Right. Well, the reason I asked that question is I was reminded of a lecture that Margie gave one time about realization of God mm -hmm. and the, the kind of... Uh, climax of the lecture was when he said that finally one reaches a point at which you know one is to, one says to God use me and I'm fit to be used mm -hmm. you know in thy service that, and um, well I, I don't say it verbally right but I feel that I don't need to do anything yes right like there's um, something else there's, uh, there's, uh, there's, the, there's the ocean is moving, and I happen to be on the crest of a wave. Right. Yeah. That's nice. <clears throat> and that, 
you know, there's so much talk about non-doing in mm -hmm. spiritual circles. And I just attended. I feel that. Yeah, I feel that. but it's not something you're not trying to non-do, no. which, which some people yeah. actually advocate. You know, just be the witness. You know, don't don't be involved in your don't don't assume authorship of your actions. Yeah, that can be contrived. Yeah, uh, and uh, to not get involved as uh, as forcing to not get involved, forcing to be a witness. Manipulating. Uh, Manipulating can be contrived. On the other hand, I can very comfortably, without trying, manage to slip into that. Um, into a sense of doership? Uh, no, or into, into non-doership. Yeah, yeah, into the witnessing awareness. Right. I, Could you get out of it if you tried? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's like there. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Like. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it just becomes second nature. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you and I were talking at breakfast the other day about the fact that... If Sometimes, though, you know, a little bit of um, a push, though. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, a few years ago, I started actually focusing on what is called Yoga Nidra, mm -hmm. just with a little bit of attention and a little bit of a simple technique that I learned. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, the witnessing and sleep became much more. Ah. So there is that too, that you know, if you put your attention, it may or may not even be a technique, it's just the fact that you're doing it, yeah. you know, that triggers the uh, process of attention. And uh, just because some people might not be familiar with the term, just perhaps elaborate on what, what we mean by witnessing in sleep. It feels like your body is uh, either dreaming and uh, or even in deep sleep, <clears throat> but there's a part of you that's fully awake, observing it, and there's a non-verbal recognition that I'm not my body or my mind. I'm the one who's witnessing that. It's not me. That uh, maybe it's my destiny to play an infinity of roles, but I'm not the roles I'm playing. You know, it's in theological literature you often hear the expression immanent and transcendent, uh, to be in the world, not of it, etc. The lamp at the door, mm -hmm. so many expressions. So it's an interesting experience because you lose your fear of death as well. You say death happens to that, not to me. Right. You know, it's yeah. kind of uh, very subtle, but when you look back, then it's very profound. And I'm sure you'd agree it's it's not something you're thinking about. No. Uh, obviously, you couldn't think about it while you're asleep. You couldn't no. be thinking, "Oh, I'm just the inner one." But the sense of existence never goes away. Right. To exist, a sense of existence. I exist not verbally, but knowing that Pure I exist. awareness. Yeah, yeah, does not go away. Right. Um, I took your workshop yesterday. You gave mm. a three-hour workshop here, and as I was listening to it. I felt like every point you made could be a springboard into a, a whole discussion. We could sit here for years. Uh, but perhaps you could just uh, sketch out some of the points that really light your fire, you know, that you like to talk about and that you talked about in that workshop, and we can, uh, you know, delve into them a little bit. Well, the most interesting thing <coughs> for me. <clears throat> the most interesting th thing for me was the insight that um, 
what we experience as perceptual reality is not fundamental. Okay, so the whole question is what is reality? You know, and, uh, when we do science, for example, we say, I want empirical evidence. I want to know what is real, if it has units of mass and energy. Uh, can we prove it? What's the technology that comes out of it? And I was brought up in that scientific tradition. And it's based on what, first of all, is called a subject-object split. It's, you know, there's an observing self, never mind we don't know who that observing self is or where that observing self is. But we do say there's something that we can observe. And that which we can observe is real. It's solid, this chair I'm sitting on, you know, I look outside that tree, it's real. And of course it's real, but is it fundamental reality? Is it what's really what's going on? And the more you look into this, both intellectually and experientially, you realize that what you see is not what is. So, what's that tree? Well, it's a quality of consciousness. I'm going ahead now because I feel I have no choice. But that tree is is a form of consciousness within consciousness. It's in me and uh, actually I am that tree. Okay, and so I'm this chair and I'm you as well. Now that for many people is a leap. <clears throat> so you have to go very gradually to that place, both intellectually and, you know, in experientially because uh, otherwise it becomes uh, a problem. The first thing to recognize is that perception, perception is species-specific and even culture-specific. So, you know, I used to use this explanation a long time ago. If you bring up a group of kittens that are in a horizontal room... Kitchens? Kittens. Oh, kittens. kittens, kittens. Yeah, <laughs> in a horizontal room. Right. When they grow up, they can only see a horizontal world. Mm -hmm. A group of kittens brought up in a vertical room with stripes, Very the true. walls. Mm -hmm. Walls are horizontal or vertical. Right. Then they grow up seeing a horizontal world mm -hmm. because their experience has shaped their brain into neuronal structures that allow them to see only that. Mm -hmm. So everything that we see is actually conditioned by experience which creates a brain that reinforces the original conditioning. And so everyone is walking around with that conditioned mind, uh, culturally conditioned, religiously conditioned, historically, economically conditioned. But even more important is, um, it's a prison that you don't recognize. And once you start to recognize that your perceptual reality is, first of all, a very small part of reality, and furthermore, it's totally species-dependent also. What would I look like to a, an insect with a hundred eyes? So if there are so many versions of perceptual reality, then which one is right? And the answer is none, you know, oh. so, or all, <laughs> all, yeah, there are none or all. 
and but it's not fundamental. Fundamental, something more mysterious is going on. You know, and scientists have struggled with it. Mm -hmm. Sir Arthur Eddington used to say, something unknown is doing we don't know what. <laughs> okay, and I think that's where science gets stuck. But a lot of people are still wedded to that. You know, mm -hmm. people like Dawkins and all, they think that this is the real reality. But when you get to it, your empirical evidence is just a description of a mode of observation, nothing mm -hmm. else. It doesn't even ask the question, who's observing? Your example about different types of animals and insects and all perceiving. I mean, everyone's familiar with the electromagnetic field and the, fact, the fact that we only experience a small sliver of it visually. And then there's radio waves and gamma waves and x-rays and all that other stuff that's part of the same field that we're not physiologically equipped to pick up on. And then other animals and life forms actually experience slightly different slivers of that field according to their capacities. Um, but see, the electromagnetic field is not fundamental. No, not ultimately fundamental. Yeah. Right. So, and even that is a qualia. But what I was getting at is, uh, using that as just an example, is it the case that there is some kind of template of reality which, uh, and there's intersubjective agreement, uh, you know, whether you're a bat or a human being, you're going to perceive that tree in some way. A bat, if he flies into it, it's going to hit it, a human being can see it. Uh, and that we're all just like filters who just, which just kind of pick up a particular snapshot or sliver of this more, to of this totality. Uh, and I'm not just talking about totality in the sense of abstract, un absolute, unmanifest totality, but somehow the relative structure seems to have a consistency of it, uh, to it, which... Um, We're in a virtual uh, game, mm -hmm. a virtual parlor, and uh, let's say we're playing virtual tennis, and uh, I'm, uh, you're across the net. The, the consistency only is that we trigger our own our own experiences and we relate to them and you can play the virtual game with your tennis ball and my tennis ball are not the same okay but we we are in a domain where we can still relate to each other mm -hmm. it's a virtual game it's a virtual reality it's not real let me put it this way when we, when we all go to sleep at night, we dream different things. And, and I don't know what you dream, you don't know what I dream. Even if we're sleeping in the same room, we, we, we're experiencing completely different realities. When, when we wake up, we, you know, w with perceptual variations, uh, we, see fun we seem to see fundamentally the same reality. Um, if one of us dies, other people still see the same room, the same tree, and so on. So is there some sort of cosmic dreamer, if this is all a dream, who is, you know, there's a consistency in in the universe because of a, a larger mind that, that's dreaming this thing, and we're just kind of a little peepholes or, or uh, sense organs of that larger mind. Yeah, the cosmic dreamer, those dreaming through insects and through right. bats right. and through chameleons and mm -hmm. through elephants and through dolphins and through whales and through giraffes and hippopotami. Uh, tortoises, I don't know what they're, they're looking at, I have no idea. And yes, then even as human species, there are certain elements that are common, but many elements that are not common. Mm. 
you know i i walk in new york city frequently i have an apartment there and i walk and i can almost sense that every person on the street that i'm seeing is a different universe i can sense that you know uh, that when i go to grand central station then everyone is going hither and thither there's a whole universe going with them and have no access to their world uh, other than the fact that we're using the same subway or what seems like the same subway to us but the reality is totally different that it's totally different where that person is going what that person is thinking what that person is anxious about what that person's personal relationships are like the love compassion anger frustration that's the reality and that's a different universe bob dylan said i'll let you be in my dream if i can be in yours yeah but um but when you go down into the subway to get on it uh it's not like you see a subway this person sees a sailboat that person sees a go-kart there's a there's a certain subwayness that, to that that's the collective agreement agreement yeah and i don't know why i consider this interesting or significant but i've been chewing on it lately i was talking to manos about it a little a little bit too i think all the conflicts in the world are conflicts between the dreams mm. everybody's basically fighting in the world right now about the my dream the, is better than your dream yeah <laughs> my dream is better or my idea or whatever yeah you know in the other religious wars about that communism versus capitalism it's all about ideas that there that the conflict is all about the dream so we started out talking about um you know the value of self-awareness and uh whether you know and so the question here would be then if that became more or less commonplace uh would would conflict cease because there would be a sort of a, uh agreed upon dream if it's is a dream at all anymore uh there wouldn't be the sort of rigid polarized um friction based way of interacting we'd all be kind of uh, more of one mind so to speak yeah we would move more in the direction of uh evolution i don't think it will completely disappear uh, but it would be a better environment more wholesome more loving more compassionate more uh, joyful more peaceful um but we you know the contrast would still be there i think some would have to be i would think in order for people to function there's got to mm-hmm. be some diversity marshy used to call it lesha vidya yeah. you know some faint remains of ignorance is necessary otherwise couldn't function mm-hmm. uh, distinguish your hand from your mouth and mm-hmm. <laughs> and so on you use the word qualia a lot um and a lot i mean that's your favorite word these days so what is qualia and why why do you consider it so important when we experience anything um there's a quality to that experience the smell of onions the taste of garlic the texture of a rose uh, the color of a sunset so that quality is referred to as qualia it's like a quantum is a unit of measurement mm-hmm. a qualia is a sensation or an image in consciousness 
or the thought or feeling and emotion or that's it basically you know so anything that we experience by any means that ends up is a qualia is a qualia okay and so what is a qualia you know so this this you just mentioned I, I feel this, this is hard yeah but what you're experiencing is, is hardness mm -hmm. you're not experiencing this is hard that's a concept mm. okay even the idea that there's a sofa is a concept mm -hmm. hardness is is what you're experiencing okay that's a qualia okay hardness softness lightness brownness, heaviness huh? brownness brownness those are qualias and that's all we experience we call it the world we also call it the body mm. and we also call it uh, we also call it uh, inside cognition they're all qualia different quality different levels of experience of qualia so in science there's something called the heart problem you know which we cannot explain how electricity going to the brain creates a three-dimensional world reality mm -hmm. and it, everybody's befuddled by it they can't explain it well if you just went back to what the Vedanta says is that reality is consciousness and its contents okay that's it consciousness the whole universe in fact Brahman Brahmand Brahman is the consciousness Brahmand is the universe but the entire universe including all bodies all minds are consciousness and its contents and there's one consciousness but differentiated into these different qualia experience so the sense of a personal eye is also a qualia okay it's a feeling are the contents any different than consciousness when you say consciousness and its contents it makes it sound like there's two different categories of things the, the, the consciousness experiences itself as the content, as contents as contents right so it's that that's all it is the qualia are forms of consciousness within consciousness so somehow consciousness is experiencing itself as the lamp as the tree as the rick archer as, right. as the microphone as the stars in the galaxies and some people describe that experience uh, they you know, they say they're living in a state where when they see the lamp they're primarily seeing themselves they're seeing consciousness secondarily it's a lamp yeah, and so on. Yeah, the lamp is a concept. Mm. You know, the lamp is a concept. I don't think uh, an, an ant would have a concept that that's a lamp, right? Right. Uh, so, yeah, so the, the, what we call reality is a symbolic representation of consciousness within consciousness. So this hard problem, how it's, it's such a mystery to scientists that that uh, I that. Uh, our neurophysiological apparatus can the neurophysiological apparatus is in fact uh, qualia gestalt mm -hmm. the brain itself is a qualia gestalt you know we give the brain we assume that the brain produces consciousness at least in science, science yeah uh, but the brain itself is an experience in the physical brain that you see is an experience in consciousness, is a qualia gestalt in mm -hmm. consciousness. The body is that. And so people say, oh, you know, they, they have these ancient arguments between idealists and, uh, and realists, as they call them, and what's his name, um, Bishop Berkeley, mm -hmm. 
said, you know, everything is thought or consciousness contents. He said it in some other way. And his, um, the guy who was debating it, he said, I kick you and that's, uh, you know, where is that? Mm -hmm. But if you understand that the body itself is a qualia, then mm -hmm. there's no problem with that. Mm. You know, the body itself and you kicking me, they're all qualia experiences. You probably know the story of Shankar where he was going to meet some king and the king thought he would test him and so he let loose a mad elephant and when the elephant started coming, Shankar scampered up a tree and the, the king said, aha, and he's a big phony, why'd you bother climbing the tree if the world is an illusion? And Shankar said, well, the illusory elephant chased the illusory me up the illusory tree. That's beautiful. <laughs> that, that summarizes the whole thing. <laughs> Could we use the illusion? Doesn't mean that it's not an experience. Correct. Okay, right. It's an experience, and the fact is, not science cannot explain experience. Not quantum science. Nothing. No science can explain experience. Quantum physics cannot. Therefore, I don't think quantum physics is the key. And the most. Uh scientists acknowledge that they can't, or is this more of a fringe perspective that, that science can't explain experience? No, I think science uh, acknowledges that you cannot explain experience. Mm. You cannot explain mental experience. You cannot experience physical experience. You cannot, in other words, may explain perceptual experience or cognitive experience. Anything that we call experience, you cannot explain in science. Mm. Because as, as soon as you say, oh, your thought is produced by a chemical, how? Right. Okay. Electricity produces a three-dimensional world. How? There's not even a theory. Well, but, you know, we turn on a radio and we start listening to Mozart, but really it's just these, you know, the electromagnetic field is fluctuating a certain the way and the radio is an itself, apparatus. The field itself is qualia. Right. There's nothing outside it's all qualia, the, f the electromagnetic field. It's a very interesting thing, you know, we give a name, human beings give a name to a phenomenon and then it becomes real, mm -hmm. okay? So, you know, I'm actually, unfortunately, tomorrow I'm going to Washington to speak at a memorial for my friend Candice Burt. Oh. And she was a colleague and actually she, I met her during the Maharishi days. Mm -hmm. She had uh, described the opiate receptor and, uh, you know, her, her um, boss got the very prestigious prize, almost won the Nobel Prize, etc., although she did all the work. But she objected to that and became very famous. Uh, she ended, uh, ended up being um, the director of brain chemistry at the NIH. And we've stayed in touch with her and she came and learned meditation at the center and Lancaster at that time and she wrote a book called Molecules of Emotion. I wrote the introduction and you know described opiates, serotonin, all the stuff you know that everybody talks about dopamine, serotonin, opiates, oxytocin and all these neurochemicals and the book was called Molecules of Emotion. I went to Maharishi and I said to Maharishi you know she's written this book called Molecules of Emotion what are molecules? And I described what she was talking about or what we were saying. And he kind of waved his hand. He said, they're not real. Okay, which we now get. But what I realized many years ago is science is a very interesting enterprise. And the only reason we believe in it is 
that it works, you know, in creating technologies and making life comfortable. All it's doing is manipulating quality experiences and measuring the regularities with which those quality experiences occur. But it occurred to me that, you know, we name something when we perceive it, the perception itself is a snapshot. If I took your snapshot and I said, this is Ricarcha, you'd say, no, that's a photo of Ricarcha. And the time I see, that's a snapshot of a moving reality. Okay, never stops. It just flows. I take a snapshot. I call it a thing. I call it a tree. I call it a bird. And now I have created something that actually was the whole universe in motion. Okay. Now I study this, I make it real, oxytocin becomes a word, everybody says this is a molecule. Okay, and then I do take snapshots of things that seemingly interact with it. And we've created science. Okay, but it's a purely human activity in human consciousness that is manipulating forms of consciousness within consciousness. And we then say, okay, we'll advance, we'll call these forces, electromagnetic field, strong and weak interactions, gravity. What is gravity? It's the experience of being heaviness, of being held together. It's a qualia, okay? I experience electrical shock, it's a qualia. There is nothing other than forms of consciousness within consciousness. There's no electromagnetic field out there. There's no, you know, there's... The well, there is and there isn't. Hmm? Uh, there is and yeah, there well, isn't. Yeah, well, it's an experience reality. And you can put it in equations and all that. Yeah. Um, and the equations are mathematical constructs in consciousness. There's no empirical observation that is an equation. Okay? There's no empirical measurement that is mathematics. You know, I so again, that I used to talk, talk a lot to scientists these days. said, would you agree that life is, and they go along, they fall for it. Would you agree that life is biology? Of course. Would you believe that uh, biology is biochemistry? Of course. And that biochemistry is chemistry, right? Yeah, yeah. And chemistry is physics, of course. And physics is quantum mechanics, yes. And quantum mechanics is mathematics, of course. Where's mathematics? It's in consciousness. So then they object, yeah, this is very reductionist approach, etc., etc. Yeah. But by then they've actually been caught. Hmm. It seems to me that the name of the game is to... Um... The name of the game is naming. Yeah, but we do that. That's what we do, that's what we do. But as soon as you give something a name, then it's no longer real, fundamental reality. The, the whole fall from the garden of whatever that garden was where Adam and Eve lived, the tree of knowledge, right. is naming things. That's what God did with, the, with Adam. He yeah. started to name things. And as soon as you name, then you create something which was, till you named it, it was the whole universe. But we're not going to stop naming things, and we've been realistic to assume that we were. We but we must then we recognize, did. we must recognize that no system of thought scientific, mathematical, theological, religious, philosophical, mm -hmm. no system of thought will 
allow us to pierce the veil that separates us from reality. Right. Reality will not be experienced through a system of thought. And that's where, you know, a true spiritual experience is not a system of thought. It's transcendence, it's uh, emergence of platonic truth, it's um, loss of fear of death, it's, I think, extreme humility at the mystery of it all. I mean, the, the most ordinary, the most ordinary of things is extraordinary because it's totally inexplicable. This thing about naming, though, uh, some people get silly about it. You know, they say, all right, well, naming things is the problem, conceptualizing is the problem. I'm not going to refer to myself in the first person anymore. You know, this one. But they do that, and Shankaracharya does that. You know, Shankaracharya doesn't call himself a person. He says, the speaker, Krishnamurti used to say. He used to say that. The speaker will now stop. Shankaracharya even goes further. He says, the speaker will give instructions to the vocals cords to stop vibrating. <laughs> I mean, this yeah. totally... They call it Advaita speak. Yeah. Um, you remember that story about Maharishi eating rice with some pundits or some, some uh, saints or something, and, and one, of the, one of the pundits said to the other, you know, what are you eating? And the, the guy said, I'm eating Brahman. And I asked Maharishi, what are you eating? He said, I'm eating rice. Rice, yeah. You know, he didn't have a problem with naming it. Yeah, no, it's and, fine. And giving it a name didn't in any way yeah, hamper fine. his ability to perceive it as essentially the self, as yeah. essentially consciousness. Yeah, I get that. So names aren't a trap, they're just a, a, a tool. As long as you will understand that an object of perception out there is not fundamental reality. Right. That's all. And ultimately, as long as you experience that, because mm -hmm. merely understanding it by listening to, it, listening to us describe it isn't going to get you too far. Yeah, although, as you know, intellectual grasping of something leads to a different feeling, different quality experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of half the battle at least. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Marcia always used to emphasize the two steps of knowledge, you know, mm. experience and understanding. Yeah. yeah. And the, the two had to be fully developed and integrated. Good. Well, I know you're very busy, and I don't want to make this too long of an interview. We've been going almost an hour, I think. Um, so I should probably let you go so you have a chance to eat lunch and everything. Um, but um, any closing thoughts you'd like to leave people with? No, it's interesting, like, you know, when I met Maharishi, when I met you, I didn't know that uh, some different world was going to unfold. Mm -hmm. It did. I had a lot of uh, experiences with Maharishi. I got very close to him, and uh, I found him an amazing presence, uh, also quite a paradox, in many ways a contradiction. But then I also realized, as they say, that the measure of enlightenment is the degree that you are comfortable with that paradox and that contradiction and that ambiguity, and it set me free. Somebody recently sent me a t-shirt with the word paradox on it because <laughs> I had mentioned in a number of interviews how much I like the word. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. I, I, in fact, I said they should put ambiguity on the back, but they didn't, so maybe I'll get another t-shirt. <laughs> well, great. Well, thanks, Deepak. Thanks, um, Really enjoy connecting with you again. Hope we'll uh, yeah, see each other from time to time more frequently. Yeah. If we don't, then we'll be well into our 90s. Come by center. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to do that yeah. sometime. Yeah. Let me just make a couple of concluding remarks that I always make. I'll, I'll keep mm -hmm. them short. Um, you've been watching an interview with Dr. Deepak Chopra, which I'm sure you realize. And this is one in an ongoing series 
of interviews that I have been doing and will continue to do. There are about 200 of them archived on batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. So go there, you'll find them listed both alphabetically and chronologically. And there's also a discussion forum, a link to be notified by email of, of new interviews, um, a link to an audio podcast so you can subscribe to it in iTunes, a donate button, and uh, some other goodies probably. So. Um, Thank you for listening or watching, and we'll see you next time, which is going to be soon because I'm doing a string of interviews here at the Science and Non-Duality Conference in California. I just want to thank Maurizio, who organizes this conference, for allowing me to do these interviews. He's gone to all the trouble and expense of bringing all these people together, and I highly encourage anyone who feels inclined to attend one of these conferences in the future. They're a lot of fun. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Deepak.